And our text this morning will be verses 31 through 37. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of a very familiar scene that we have in the Scriptures, one that we are, I would say, all familiar with, and that is Moses before the Lord in the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, we would read, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off, your, take off your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I want to remind you all of what we are entering into in this moment and on this day when we stand with Bibles open and we stand and we read and hear the Scriptures read, this moment is holy ground. With Holy Scripture before us as we encounter the Holy God manifest in His Holy Son, Jesus Christ, let us understand when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And in doing so, we approach the Word of God, even in the preaching moment, with fear and trembling, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yet we rejoice because through Christ we have access. We can approach the throne of grace, but we do so even in this moment reverently. With that, our text this morning, Mark chapter 7, verse 31, hear the word of God. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here we enter into this passage. Jesus is healing a man. He heals a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. Mark has given us a series of healings that Jesus has done. And a question we should ask when we look at this passage is, what's so remarkable about this one? 
What's so significant? Why does Mark decide to give us this account? Real estate in the Gospels is expensive, and there's only so much room. So Mark chose specifically to record this one for his listeners. I think this is very important. One thing we have to see when we think about Mark's gospel is the movement and location is very important to Mark's writing. Notice here in verse 31, the movement of Jesus. Sometimes we read about these regions and areas. We're like, okay, can we just get to the point, though? You have to understand, to get to the meaning and purpose of this passage, the locations matter. Very much so. They are very significant to help us grasp the meaning of this text. We see in verse 31 that Jesus is moving from Tyre to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee over to the region called the Decapolis. So we find Jesus now in this place called the Decapolis, the Deca, Ten, Polis cities. So this is the, the land or the region of the Ten cities. Jesus is going beyond the borders of Israel and, 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 and where there's a high concentration of Jewish people, he's actually in more Gentile territory right now. This is Hellenistic Greek area. You would re, this would be the area that is to the east of the Jordan River. The Decapolis is only mentioned three times in all of the New Testament, twice by Mark, once by Matthew. What's so significant about this region? We must understand here that this is a very important place, especially after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In fact, in the Decapolis is the region where the Apostle Paul was baptized. Of the ten cities, one of them is Damascus. And where is Paul going in Acts chapter 9? He's got letters on the way to Damascus. That's where he encounters Ananias and he is thrown off his horse, he is baptized this is an important region of area. It became a hotbed for Christianity and the gospel witness after Pentecost. So what we see here first and foremost in verse 31 is that Jesus is beyond the borders of Israel. Jesus is on a Gentile mission. And what Mark is doing here for his readers and listeners is he's foreshadowing the greater Gentile mission that's going to take place after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Mark writes to a largely Gentile audience, non-Jew, in Rome. Peter is probably his primary source for much of his information that he shares. They needed to hear this. They needed to hear that the gospel, that Jesus was for them. That the gospel message was for them as well. And it's safe to assume here we are largely a Gentile, non-Jewish audience, and we need to hear this message too, that this gospel, this Savior is our Savior. So Jesus is in this region of the Decapolis. Verse 32, we see the issue that is brought before us in this text here. We would read, look again at your text. He said, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is outside of the region. He's never been in this area before. And they bring to him a man with a speech impediment. One thing we must note here and recognize is that Jesus' reputation precedes him. As he goes to a place where he has not traveled before, they recognize him. There's no social media. 
There's no Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But yet he is still recognized in a place that he has not traveled to before. This is interesting. I would encourage you actually to flip back in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 19 of Mark. And I want you to see this connection here. Now, Jesus in chapter 4 of Mark, he calms the storm. He's in the Galilee area. They travel all the way across the Sea of Galilee for this, what ends up being a rescue mission, a one-time mission. There's a storm at sea. Jesus calms the storm. He teaches his disciples something very significant, that winds and waves obey him, that he is the author of creation. He has the power over all nature. And then Mark, like I said, Real estate in the Gospels is expensive. Mark gives us 20 verses in chapter 5 about the healing of this man who was he who had thousands of demons, legion, for they were many. He's a man among the tombs. And we look and think, well, why would Mark give us all of this, this long story? Matthew doesn't give it to us in this great detail. Let me just remind you that Jesus heals him. This man says, hey, I want to go be your disciple. I want to come with you on the boat. And Jesus says, no. He says, no, I've got something else for you. I want you to go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. Now look, where does he go in verse 20 of chapter 5? He goes home, he proclaims the mercy of, of Jesus for him, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. This is the first Gentile missionary. He was, do, he was bringing the, the gospel to the Gentiles before Paul was commissioned. In many ways, this is kind of like a John the Baptist-like figure. We don't know his name, but he is proclaiming Jesus in the Decapolis. So when Jesus then arrives, in many ways, the forerunner has already been there. And so they recognize Jesus. He has now arrived in the flesh. And, again, the issue that we see here, we have a man who could not hear, and connected to the, the loss of his hearing, there was a speech impediment. It's not likely that this was from birth. As we would see in, in his healing, he was able to speak and hear clearly. But nonetheless, Mark doesn't give us the details of how and when this Infirmity came about on the man. Nonetheless, what we need to see is he is in this state and it appears to be permanent until Jesus does something. And his friends and his family get word that Jesus is nearby, so they bring him because he would not know. He would not have desired to even come. They bring him to Jesus. You know, I think about the they in verse 32. You read, and they. We don't have any details who they are. But when we think about the they, those are good people. Maybe they're his friends. Maybe they're his family. But we think about what kind of true friends they are. They cared for this man. They cared for him. I think there's a lesson we could look at there. We want to be like the they in this passage. We need to be friends who bring others to Jesus. Intercede for them. Because they didn't just go to Jesus and say, hey, here's a guy that needs some help. It says they begged him. Begging the Lord for healing. And we should do the same for our friends and our loved ones. But most importantly, we beg for spiritual healing. We have friends, we have neighbors, we have loved ones that are lost. That cannot hear, that do not have eyes to see. We too should be like these friends, begging the Lord in intercession. 
Well, that's a lesson. It's certainly not the point. The point here that we would see in verses 31 and 32 is that Jesus comes to the least of these. Think about this man. This man who is deaf and with his speech impediment. For him, it was just another day. He wakes up that day. I'm sure he's thinking today is going to be no different than yesterday and tomorrow is going to be the same. It's just life as it is. Except one little thing was different about this day. Jesus was in town. And when Jesus arrives, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. This man was about to have his entire world turned upside down. No doubt he would proclaim for the rest of his life this was the greatest day of his life. He encountered Jesus. So here we have it. We have a deaf, speech-impaired Gentile outside of Israel. This is one who many in society would consider the least of these. And we see here in these two verses, Jesus comes to the least of these. Let's ask the question, why? Why does Jesus do this? And the answer is because he's the good shepherd. Because this is who he is. It's what he said in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And the beauty of this passage is that the deaf man listens to the voice of Jesus and responds. So this was no ordinary day. Not for this man, who we don't know his name, but he had a divine appointment set for, with God on this day. And so Jesus comes to the least of these. Now verses 35 through, or 33 through 35, we see that Jesus not only comes to the least of these, but Jesus heals the least of these. Verse 33 and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. It's important to note that Jesus hears and responds to the pleads of the crowd. They who begged Jesus to heal and to do a work on their friend, Jesus heard their cries. Jesus gives attention to their pleads. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, never stop interceding for the ones you love. Never stop praying for those you love. And Jesus wants this event not to be so public, but to be a private matter. Between Jesus and the man, he takes him away privately. Yes, he could do this publicly for all to see, but no, this is a private, this is a personal encounter between the man and Christ. And we read that Jesus put his fingers in his ears and spit on his hand, most likely, and touched the man's tongue. I think we have to pause here for a second. What is going on here? If you're a germaphobe, you're uncomfortable right now. And rightfully so. Fingers in ears and touching someone else's tongue. And, and this man opened his mouth and, 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 and let Jesus touch his tongue, which is... There's personal space, right? There, there's kind of like an invasion of space that we're not comfortable with. I don't think I would feel good if someone stuck their fingers in my ears or tried to touch my tongue. I'd say, whoa, 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 I don't know what's going on here. Consider all the healings, even that Mark records up until this point. Let me just give it to you in summary. 
The first is Peter's well, first is Peter's mother-in-law. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her hand, and he lifted her up. Jesus lays hands on a leper. To a paralyzed man, he just speaks, rise and walk. He told the man with a withered hand, open it. To the woman with a discharge of blood, she touches the hem of his garment and is healed. He takes a dead 12-year-old girl, grabs her by the hand, raises her to life. In the previous section, right before this, of the Syrophoenician woman's faith, he heals a girl who's not even in the same building as him. And now we have this? What's happening here? Was this necessary? Did Jesus need to stick his fingers in the man's ears and touch his tongue? No, he didn't. He could have just spoken a word and it would have all been done. Let me give you three things that we can see concerning Christ in this act. First, we see the personal nature of Jesus' healing. This is intimate. This is close. Second, we see the humility of Jesus displayed here. He never viewed people as below them, below him. He was willing to touch the least of these. He wasn't grossed out by the infirmities of others. He loved his image bearers. And the third thing we see concerning Christ in this act is he got down to the man's level. As they locked eyes, Jesus employs the power of touch to signal to this man as he puts his fingers in his ears, I'm about to do something for you. As he reaches down and he touches the man's tongue, another signal to the man, I'm going to make things well. I'm going to heal you. The man cannot hear, so he he embraces Christ in this moment. What we see is the compassion and the sympathy of Jesus fully displayed with this man. And in verse 34, we're, we're, we're getting to that climatic moment. Jesus looks up to heaven as a recognition of divinity and unity with his Father. And then we read these words, he sighed. Let's not overlook those two words. As Jesus is reaching out to this man and he looks up to heaven and he looks back at this man, it says, Mark records for us, that he sighed. What this literally means is that he groaned with pain. What we see here of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this moment, Jesus is entering into this man's hurt. He felt the burden of the curse and its effects. Jesus took this man's pain Jesus' heart hurt in this moment. We read, he sighed. Now as I was working through this text and I was doing my sermon prep and all my exegesis and I'm, I'm getting through and I, and I get to verse 34 and, and, I, and I read and he sighed and, I, and it just stopped me in my tracks as I'm sitting there at my table and I'm alone and I've got all my, my stuff out and I was so overwhelmed with the compassion of Christ in this moment. I couldn't even do sermon prep anymore. I just needed to stop. I needed to pray. I needed to worship. That Jesus loved this man so much. He felt the pain 
and the burden of the curse. I can only imagine how heavy and what thoughts were behind that sigh. We read in Genesis 1.31, after God had created everything, and behold, it was very good. Well, this moment isn't very good. Yes, we know that the, the, the gospel is plan A from eternity past in the covenant of redemption, that, that, that Christ would secure a people for his own possession, that he would go and, uh, in submission to the will of the Father, he would be a ransom for many. But we also know that God created everything very good. And the effects of the curse do not bring delight to Jesus. You think about Jesus when he's at Lazarus' tomb, very similar situation. It says that he was moved deeply in his spirit. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, sin, pain, mental illness, physical infirmity was not in the original creation. That is a result of the fall. That is a result of the curse. And while God redeems suffering in our lives and uses all things in this masterful tapestry of His sovereignty for His glory, Jesus does not delight in the effects of the curse. We see that right here. He sighed. There are many of us here, even this morning, that are suffering the effects of the curse by no choice of our own. Maybe some of us are struggling with the hardness of hearing. Our eyesight might not be as good as it once was. RA, cancer, tumors, failed kidneys, miscarriages, infertility, Strokes, Parkinson's, Lyme disease, all infirmities that plague us, maybe even just the pain and difficulty of aging. Brothers and sisters, I want you to remind you that you have a Savior who enters into that pain with you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, even greater, we have one who has invaded humanity, took upon himself flesh, felt the pain of living in the sin-cursed world. He can identify. We think about us. Think about us. We are the redeemed, but we still battle against sin. How do you feel when you see suffering around you? Mental illness, poverty, physical infirmities. You see, and hear of children that are starving and there's no food. How do you feel? We sigh and we think, oh, if we could just fix this. If we could end this, I would. If I had the power to, to right all the wrongs and to put an end to the suffering and the pain in this world, I would. How much more the Son of God in this moment and what we see, in this case, he does something about it. 
reading, picking up again in verse 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephephtha, that is, be opened. And what's the result? Verse 35, his ears were opened. He was healed. He was fully healed. There wasn't a progressive healing here. This man was healed fully. What we see going on in this moment is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. As Isaiah is pointing to the the messianic reign that is to come, speaking of the Messiah, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What we see here is Jesus came to reverse the curse. And how does he do it? He does so in this case by healing, yes. But he ultimately does it by dying and rising again. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. As Christ would go to the cross, bearing his own cross, and he was have his arms stretched out, and he was nailed to that tree, as he suffers there, a mockery to the world. In that moment of Christ's suffering, we would read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in that moment, Christ is taking upon himself our sin. Though he became no he did not commit a sin, he is being treated as the sinner, as the covenant breaker, as the one who has broken all the covenants of the, uh, that are mentioned in Deuteronomy. And all the covenant curses that are to fall upon our head are falling upon him as he's being treated in that way. As he's bearing the curse for our sin. As he's enduring the wrath of God against our disobedience and sin. So that in bearing that wrath, we would be treated as the covenant keepers. Not because we are, but because He was. And so Christ came to bear our sins, to give us His righteousness, so that we would be restored into right fellowship with the Father, with the Son, by the Spirit. So that we would be have a secure hope, yes, in this life, but in the life to come because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, the death, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope. It is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. So while you are struggling with the effects of sin and in the and with the curse we can know and we can look forward that one day we will be freed because of a work that has already been accomplished. And when we grasp this truth by faith, we can join the company with the Apostle Paul and say that these light momentary afflictions are just preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Yes, life is going to be hard. Yes, there's going to be infirmities. Yes, we are going to struggle. But there is, there is a, a greater day that is coming that we look forward to when sin and death will be no more and He will wipe away every tear. And the dwelling place of God will be with man and it is secured through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I do want to remind you, and as we do know, until that day, we recognize that some days will be harder than others. Remember, though, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 35 says his ears were opened, back to the text. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now I was thinking, what do you think he said? Mark doesn't record it for us, but he said he spoke plainly. I can only imagine the first thing that was maybe uttered out of this man's mouth. It might have taken him some time to even speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Without a shadow of a doubt, this man worshipped. He worshipped. And we see here that Jesus heals the least of these. And as a result of this healing, verses 36 and 37, we see that Jesus is proclaimed by the least of these. Verse 36, we read, Jesus charged them. This, we're back to the they. Now, now they who saw this, this is the larger crowd. He says, don't tell anyone. So this is just continuing with Mark's kind of secrecy motif throughout his gospel in the early stages. I remind you in John 6, 15, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king because he had fed 5,000 people. And Jesus said, hey, we're not going to accelerate this uh, to, to the passion. There's a training for the disciples that needs to take place. And so Jesus kind of has this, this secrecy motif that continues. Don't tell anyone. But even so, as Jesus charges them not to tell anyone, the people still speak of what he has done. Now commentators are kind of split on how to understand uh, Verse 36 and 37. They don't, some think it's negative. These people are showing their sinfulness. Others kind of see this as a, a positive statement here. I th- believe Mark is showing us two things from verses 36 and 37. The first is that Jesus didn't heal to get famous. Jesus didn't heal so that he could draw a large crowd. Jesus didn't do good works so that everyone would just... Well, you know, look up to him in these ways. Jesus healed this man because he loved him. That's first and foremost. This is what motivated Christ. The second thing that I think we can see from this is that when Jesus does a work in a person's life, they cannot keep silent. They cannot keep it silent. So I would conclude here that the people are actually acting positively by virtue of their proclamation in verse 37. What do they say about Christ? It says they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And brothers and sisters, their proclamation is ours too, is it not? Jesus heals. Jesus saves. 
Jesus does all things well. And so as we look at this text here, these few verses, a question we should ask, how are we to respond to Jesus? Well, let me just turn you back there to Mark 5 again. In Mark 5, verse 20, remember this man who went before Christ. It says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them, for him. And what was the response of the people? It says that everyone marveled. This is because they heard the testimony of another. They had heard of what Jesus has done and they marveled at what they saw in the testimony from this man. Well, now they experienced Christ firsthand. Now they had witnessed the healing and saving act of Christ. And we read in verse 37, it says that they were astonished beyond measure. Put these together, Christian. You have heard the testimony of Christ. You have heard from others concerning the testimony of Christ, but not just that. You have experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ in your life. You have come to know and taste and see that the Lord is good. You have passed from death to life. How are we to respond to Jesus? We are to marvel beyond measure at the beauty, the goodness, and the glory of of Jesus Christ, so that we can proclaim He does all things well. So as we think about even this passage and our response, let me give you five points, because we love five points. It's always good to have five points. If they're a rebuttal statement, five points. First, we need to recognize that we are like the deaf man. We need to know that we are the least of these. Let me remind you of Paul's Paul's words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame, shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And here's the point. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So first, know we are the least of these. Second, remember Remember that Jesus had to come to you. We were once blind, deaf, and mute, spiritually speaking. In fact, no, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Had Jesus never come to us, we would never have come to him. So we need to remember where we once were. Third, trust. We need to trust that Jesus continues to save the least of these. Trust that he who had promised is faithful. Trust that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What God starts, God finishes. He will hold you fast. Never give up hope 
even when the infirmities and the, and the trials and the curse and sin feels like it weighs so heavily upon you. He will see you through this. His grip upon you is far stronger than your grip upon Him. Fourth, proclaim. Proclaim Jesus heals. Jesus heals hearts. Jesus heals relationships. Jesus restores marriages. Jesus takes what is unwell and makes it well. What is broken, He puts back together because He came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus heals, Jesus saves, Jesus does all things well. And finally, it's a call to worship. We are to worship Him. We are to worship Him because He does all things well. So our response to Jesus Christ is to marvel beyond measure. Let's pray. Oh God, there are times there are just not words that we can even express that signify our gratitude, our thankfulness for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to rescue poor, miserable sinners such as ourselves. Lord, we recognize that He does all things well. And we are thankful to know that even in this moment, He lives to make intercession for us. That we can boldly approach Your throne of grace and find help in the time of need. We thank You that from this account we can see the love of Jesus Christ for hurting humanity. Father, may we go and do likewise as we seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus, as we seek to proclaim the goodness and, the, and your gospel. We seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.